Grace and peace, RCF. It's been a while. Uh, good to be back. Excited to be back. It's a joy to be in the Word with you all. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. We're uh, beginning just a short series, as we shared at the members' meeting, we like to do at least once a year at the beginning of the year. We just hope to provide some words in season. And uh, the, the series we're, we're thinking through in uh, this season is navigating hard times. And so we're going to look at a passage that for me has become the go-to text to give Brian straight quickly uh, and helps me navigate hard times. It's a compass of kinds for me, and I pray it becomes one to you. Uh, so Mark chapter 4, and the verses we're going to be looking at is 35 to 41. Let me pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> oh, dear Lord. What, what a joy, what a joy it is to know you. We don't deserve this, we get to know you. And we rejoice in that, we boast about that. You say, if somebody's going to boast, it better not boast in their strength, or in their riches, or in their wisdom. The ones who boast, they should boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. And we're thankful that we know you, Lord. And even as we say that, we admit there's so much more for us to learn. So we ask, Lord, that you would teach us. Help us to think better about the Lord Jesus this afternoon. Help us to think better about the gospel this afternoon. Help us to think better about our life as sojourners and exiles in this world that we seek to live for your glory. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Use this word, Lord, and change us by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Believer, trials are par for the course. That means trials are a regular, average occurrence in the life of a believer it's, it's just what happens. If you're going to be a Christian, which you ought to expect, are trials. Jesus told us this. This is why he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Not because there's not troubles there. He told you there, there's troubles there. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He said, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Uh, troubles for you today, troubles for you tomorrow, troubles on top of troubles which means that if we're going to honor the Lord and if we're going to be joyful people in our pilgrimage to glory as we're headed to the place with no troubles, we must learn to navigate the place with them. And Jesus teaches us all we need for life and godliness. Does he not, Carl? Yes, he does. I can see you shaking. I'm seeing uh, not everything you learn in school is equally relevant for your life trajectory. 
Parents, I'll let you explain that to your kids later. Uh, chances are that calculus isn't going to serve most people in their day-to-day -day life. And most of us say amen. I know there's a couple of y'all that you use that. <laughs> um, so that's in most people. I try to be careful. Uh, I took two years of French in high school. Exactly. That joint has never helped me, <laughs> ever. <laughs> that joint's never come out, except for when I'm trying to impress somebody. Je parle français. <laughs> it was like, you speak French? I'm like, nah. <laughs> it's just two years of my life spent on that. So there were some things that I learned in school that really has nothing to do with my life right now. It's not so with what we learned from the Lord Jesus. He doesn't teach us empty lessons. His lessons are needed lessons. His, his teachings preserve life. It cultivates life. Uh, this instruction, this book of lessons, we're told is profitable, right? It's beneficial for our training in righteousness, for our reproof, for our correction, for our rootedness in the Lord Jesus. And today, we're going to consider some instruction from our Lord that is sure to be relevant for our whole life. If you can agree and you understand that trials are going to happen, we agree we need to get better at navigating them. I've yet to meet the person who says, I got that locked. And in case you do, I would just like to compare your experience of trials with what we'll look at at the Lord Jesus in the text and see if there's any room for improvement. Uh, dear saints, do you know how to sleep in a storm? I don't mean with a sound machine. Uh, our kids have a sound machine, and on it there's a bunch of sounds from nature that is supposed to calm them. And really, when you think about it, some of the stuff in there is kind of weird. Uh, they got a rainforest setting, so there's like crickets and creatures, and that's not restful. Um, one of them is a thunderstorm, and you're like, okay, I get that, because I actually like the sound of a thunderstorm. But I only like the sound of a thunderstorm I can control. So I like a thunderstorm I can turn down at will or turn up at will, because if you've ever been in one, not one that's far off, but that's right over you, and that thunder starts to shake everything that's happening in your skeleton, you get a little bit nervous, you get a little bit scared. And that's when you're inside a house. But do you know how to sleep in the middle of a storm? More specifically, do you know how to sleep in a boat through a life-threatening storm as it's happening? That's a whole different question. We don't mean can you sleep in your bed while you listen to a storm. I mean, can you envision yourself on a boat in a storm that's happening on where your boat is and be sleeping through it? I don't think many of us can. And as we watch our lives and how we deal with our own trials, I think many of us prove that we, we don't know that lesson that well. Some of us are light sleepers by nature. Some of us are heavy sleepers. But not many of us can sleep this kind of sleep, that know this kind of peace, that experience this kind of rest, even in life-threatening circumstances. But there is a way to do it. God's word gives us a picture of it happening, and I think it does so in order to invite our participation in that peace. 
And what we find, like all things that's going to be good for the people of God, it is only made possible, it is only made available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I know for many of us, this past year has been a crazy, crazy storm. The unpredictable waves have been knocking our boats all over the place. Pandemic started, still going. Friendships, significantly disturbed. Jobs have been unsettled. Some instances, they've been lost. Relationships, all of them that I know of, strained by distance. Transitions of people, both beloved members and a pastoral transition on the horizon. The Lord brings new saints to us, but some of these dear saints have had the unique struggle of finding a church during a global crisis, which is hard trying to build new relationships and establish community in a new city and a new church all during the corona. Saints, there's a lot of hard stuff. And that's just the stuff that happened outside of us. But we need to add to that, right? All of that sinful storm of emotions that each one of us walk around with daily if you add that all up and you put that in a blender, that is a huge recipe for freaking out and anxiety-filled fear. And that is life in a fallen world, all those things and more. If we pass the mic around, we could spend the day testifying about our troubles. Jesus told us, right, in the world you will have what? Tribulation. An accurate description of our ongoing Christian journey is that we will have sufficient trouble today and there will be trouble for us tomorrow, should we make it till then, because none of us are promised then. But remember that context changes everything. So as I say, if we're listening to a storm, it's different if you're outside in the storm by yourself or if you're in a bed listening to a storm on a box, right? Context changes everything. Uh, it's true that we'll go through trials, but we don't go through trials by ourselves. Uh, it's true that we have a lot of burdens, but we don't bear burdens on our own. It's true that we have a lot of cares, but we have a God who cares for us. And friends, that changes everything. I was just now able to easily recount problem after problem covering this past year, which again doesn't talk on our personal crosses we endure, but surely life, we agree, is like a boat ongoingly sailing through a storm of difficulty, being tossed by high and harsh waves of hardship. That's what the Christian life is. But the Christian life isn't just that. It's sailing through all that with Jesus. And if you got Jesus in the boat, friends, that changes everything. Jesus changes how you process trials, doesn't he? And if he doesn't, that's something to concern us because he should. Jesus claims to change what you feel. He claims to change what you experience. And this is because he can grant you what you feel and what you experience. He can enter into ways that 
Nobody else can. He can provide to you what nothing else can. He can give you peace. Even in the middle of a great storm. I ask you again, dear saint, as you think about your life this past year, have you learned how to sleep in the storm? Because we need to learn. This is not the only storm. We don't get out of the storm till we arrive at the other side. The scripture teaches us a way to do it. That's Mark. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 4. Uh, the gospel of Mark is an action-packed narrative about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's action-packed. You're going to see that word immediately all throughout the gospel of Mark. It's just like, bam, 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 bam. Jesus just gets busy, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Uh, through this gospel account, right, we are continually, and we are powerfully brought face-to-face -face with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might worship him in all his splendor. Uh, our passage for consideration this afternoon comes at the end of chapter 4, which if you just do a quick little survey looking at those little headers, right, this is right after Jesus has been instructing the crowds concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, he largely did this in parables in the public, and then he provided explanations to his disciples in private. You see that there at verse 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything to them. And yet there's still more for them to learn. He still has more to teach them. There's much about the Lord Jesus they didn't understand. And so we, like them, have much to learn about our Jesus that we follow, that we listen to, who instructs us, and we'll look in the text so we might learn some things about him. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, here is the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You could probably sit down and pray now. We would be encouraged. But I hope to offer a few thoughts to aid your walk with the Lord. Well, our text very quickly presents a scary situation in some very scared disciples. 
uh, we're told in verse 35 that the evening had come, right? And so it's dark. And we know that darkness can make some things more scary, right? It's one thing and it's one challenge to have to walk through the desert. I think we would all agree it'd be far more challenging to walk through the desert at night. Well, here they are, and they're embarking on this journey without the comfort of the light of day. Uh, they don't know what's about to happen. We do as the readers. Um, but there's a great storm a-brewing that they soon must encounter. And just as an aside, what we need to be reminded of, I think even at this point, is sometimes God is very pleased to stack up the burdens uh, in order to humble us further so that we might better know him. Uh, so sometimes he gives double-deckers of trials, not just one single layer. Sometimes he adds weight on top of weight, on top of weight, on top of weight, in order to humble us so that we might know him better. Uh, consider Job, uh, Job and the collection of burdens that God ordained for him. It could have just been one thing to strike Job with a little suffering. And any of us, anytime we go through a little suffering, we're usually quick to say, Lord, it is enough. But God gave him layers, layers on top of layers. Uh, and any trial by itself is often is enough to overwhelm us. We often like just get perplexed that he gives us multiple trials all in one, that he makes a situation harder than even hard would be. I was thinking about Job. In Job 1.14, we're told that one messenger comes to Job. This is after God has given Satan permission to test him. One messenger shows up to Job, and you remember what he said. Uh, he comes up to Job, and he informs him, all of his servants that were watching the oxen and donkeys were killed, and all the oxen and donkeys were stolen. And we don't have oxen and donkeys, but it was a lot. That somebody just broke into your house, stole your stuff, and killed whoever watching it. That's a big deal. That's a big trial. But the text tells us in verse 16, while the messenger was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants watching them. You're like, man, that's a double dose of hardship. That's a lot. But verse 17 says, while he was yet speaking, there came another messenger saying, the Chaldeans came and took all the camels and killed all the servants who were caring for them. Verse 18 says, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a great wind came, and we're told that it struck the house and killed all his kids. And then after that, while he was in misery and mourning, we're told he got struck with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, so much so that he had to scrape himself with a piece of broken pottery while he sat in ashes. Sometimes one wave hurts us a lot, and then we just get perplexed. Why God keep hitting us with all these waves, though? Sometimes God ensures that we encounter a collection of complications in the path of obedience. Sometimes he adds many burdens to our trials, but the God of all comfort can and will comfort us in any and every affliction with the grace he himself supplies. It has been, his grace has been sufficient for all his people and it's sufficient for all of us in all our trials, even with all their layers. He, he often sees fit for us to be tossed with many waves before he brings a calm. 
Well, in this text, we, we, have, we have a couple things stacking up here. It's nighttime, and now they're about to go through a storm. And they leave to cross the sea. We're told there's a lot of people here. It was a very large crowd in chapter 4, verse 1. They were clearly surrounded by other boats, it says. So this had been, uh, this had been a busy day of ministry. The Lord Jesus had been teaching. Uh, perhaps this is to tell us just how tired and taxed the Lord Jesus would have been because we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, that he actually stood in the boat and was preaching to the people on the shore and the people in the boats all around. All of this is happening on the same day. This is later that day. And they take Jesus, it says, as he was, which probably means tired. They didn't get to go back on the shore. He didn't get to get refreshed. He didn't get to take a quick nap. No, they went back on, on, they went immediately out to the shore or to the sea, which is probably why Jesus went right out. Long day of ministry without an opportunity to, for a break, and we find, no surprise, the Lord Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. Uh, in 1986, uh, which is a wonderful year for many reasons, um, a fishing boat was discovered in the Sea of Galilee uh, that is dated back to the time of Christ. And it's called the ancient Galilee boat. I think some call it the Jesus boat. Uh, this is not saying that this is the boat they were on, but it is helpful just to kind of hear some of the um, schematics about it so you can see kind of the size of the boat. I don't know if you've ever wondered, how big was that boat? Well, this is a boat that was around at that time. The dimensions of the boat they found was seven and a half feet wide. That's a little bit wider than my arms right now. It was 27 feet long and over four feet deep. That's a pretty... I mean, I don't know anything about boats. When I heard that, that was bigger than what I had in my mind. I had them all on like a little tiny little rowboat, and uh, that was actually helpful for me. Uh, again, we don't know the exact boat they were on. We don't know those dimensions. Uh, but it is helpful to at least have an idea of how it may have been. Uh, there's at least, it's at least big enough for 13 men, one of which is asleep in the stern. Again, I know nothing about boats, but the stern is in the back of the boat. Uh, and oftentimes there's a sleeping or a resting area. Sometimes that's under the surface of the deck unless it's elevated and there's like a little cubby back there. And that seems to be where the Lord Jesus was asleep. So they get in their boat. They head out over the sea. Uh, one scholar says that the Sea of Galilee, based on where it was situated, was particularly susceptible to sudden violent storms. So it seemed that storms were part of the course of the Sea of Galilee, and the storm certainly came. Now, verse 37 tells us that things got real, real quick. It says a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling with water. Even if you're not gifted in boating, uh, you know boats are not supposed to have the water inside them. You want the water outside of the boat. And if the boat gets, if water gets inside the boat, We've all seen Titanic, right? We know how that happens. The boat sinks. And this is where it's, it, it's helpful to have a little godly imagination. I mean, can you imagine being in the boat in the middle of the sea at night and the boat getting tossed? And we're not talking about just, you know, a normal boat. If you're on a boat, it has like, you know, has a little sway. We're talking about rocking. We're talking about a great windstorm. We're talking about waves flying up. So much so that your boat is now filling with water. 
Uh, when I was renovating my kitchen and a water valve got stripped, <laughs> water was shooting up all in my kitchen. I was shook. And I called, I called Frank freaking out. That was water. I was in a house. So I know I would not have processed this well. There's no way. You play all you want to, like you would have been like, let him sleep, y'all. We're going to be all right. Nah. And I know this because I've known y'all this past year. Amen? We, we a freaking out group. I mean, the disciples are shook. They're clearly scared. It's a scary situation, right? It's certainly a scary situation means you should be scared. They're so scared, they think they're about to die. Look at verse 38. What they ask Jesus is, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? probably more frantic because they woke him up. It was more like, take, do you not care? We're perishing. Right? They think that they're about to perish and so they're totally freaking out. And that's what we do. Little, little, and our storms are usually not that immediately life-threatening. It doesn't take that much for us to freak out or to even wrongfully accuse God of not caring and checking out on us. Right in this text, we have some scared disciples in the middle of a scary situation. It's night. There's a great windstorm. Waves are breaking into the boat. The boat's already filling up the water. They seem to be sinking. They think they're perishing. They think they're ruined and it's over. But thus far in the story, I have skipped over an important detail. And it's the same important detail that they skipped over. And that's the fact that True, it is night. True, there are water pouring into their boat. True, there is a great windstorm. But what they skipped over is they got the Lord Jesus with them in the boat. How are you about to perish? And you got the Lord Jesus with you. How are you going to just focus on a scary situation and just jump over the fact that you got a sleeping savior right there in the boat with you. And this is us, right? We often want to talk about what's scary, but not rejoice in who's with us. We often want to worry about what's changing, but not worship the one who doesn't. We look at the winds, we look at the waves, we look at the boat. But we need to be looking at the Savior. And this is a comfort that is the unique comfort that belongs to the people of God. It's one of the things it means to be saved. Uh, the, the apostle liked to start his letters off with some pretty astounding news, and that is that in Christ something has come to every saint, and that is they have grace and peace. Peace. This is something only believers have. This, it, it, if Jesus wasn't in the boat and if Jesus wasn't their savior, if he wasn't their shepherd, sure, freak out. But if he is with you, 
And if he is your savior, and if he is your shepherd, why are you so afraid? That's what he asks them. Oh, what's happening here? I mean, we would understand that this was an unbeliever, someone who has rejected what God offers people. I mean, we, we, we find in the Bible that an unbeliever, someone who has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, they, in fact, have every reason to be always freaking out. They have every reason to be scared always. They have every reason to be afraid. In fact, they're commanded to. They have every reason to anticipate perishing. That's, some that's, that's what an unbeliever does. That's some unbeliever stuff because they have no God. Their troubles don't get solved for them. They don't get delivered out of them. They get multiplied for them, we're told. Those without Jesus indeed are in a scary situation and they will sink down into a scary judgment. What they have most to fear is it's not some waves coming into the boat. It's the wave of God's wrath out against sin. With no Christ, there is no rescue. With no Christ, there is no peace. And again, what there is to fear is being flooded with the judgment of God that will come on account of everyone who doesn't have someone to pay for their sin. If there's anybody here who has not turned from their sin and come to the Lord and is trusting in the Lord, is resting in the Lord, who has the safety of the Lord, who knows that Jesus has paid for their sins and that he has pledged to be with them and he himself will guarantee their safe arrival all the way to glory. If there's someone who, who doesn't know that Jesus or has rejected that Jesus, please understand, it is guaranteed that you will absolutely perish and you will absolutely deserve to. Indeed, everyone who has sinned against God absolutely will perish and absolutely deserves to. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that despite us deserving to perish, God cares. The irony of their question is that the gospel is the message of God caring that we are perishing. The disciples question to Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? God cares that we're perishing. He's proven to us that he cares that we're perishing. He's done it in the clearest possible way, the most powerful possible way. He has demonstrated he cares that we're perishing. And the way he proved that he cares about us perishing is not in a couple verses where Jesus calms the storm. It's at the cross where Jesus saves our souls. At the cross, the Lord Jesus paid for our sins. He suffered in our place. He died because of our rebellion. At the cross, the Lord Jesus was consumed by the wrath of God. He was crushed by the force of God's holy judgment. He was slain as a substitute, a substitute in our place. At the cross, God in all his love is screaming to everyone, look, look, look how much I care that you're perishing. I care that you're perishing. Come and don't perish anymore. That's the gospel that God has so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. This is earlier than the cross. The disciples are too short-sighted to see that. They weren't listening to what Jesus was teaching. And so they're asking him a very crude, unbelieving question. You're talking to the one who left heaven to come and save you, and you're asking him if he cares that you're perishing. This Jesus who, who, who left the comforts of glory and emptied himself, became the form of a servant, took on human flesh so he could suffer the, the crucifixion that he could go through and taste death for all his people so he could carry the sorrows of sinners. This Jesus who came to be chastised and wounded for your healing, they're asking him if he cares about him. We say that's ridiculous, that's a bad question. Teachers, when they want to encourage people to ask questions, they say there's no such thing as a bad question. That's a lie. This is a bad question. And it's one we still ask. Oh, what does it take to tip your confidence that he cares about you? What little thing needs to change for us to start accusing him of not caring? What does he need to deny to get you to deny that you know he cares for you? Friends, he he came to be with you because he loves you, because he cares for you. He's coming to bring you home. This is why the truth of God being with us can never be overtaught. It can never be assumed that we get it. Because if we got it, we'd be looking like Jesus in this storm when we go through ours. I'm confident that there is nothing in all of creation that brings closer to Jesus than love, life or death itself that can ever separate me from He's with us, right? Not to sink us, but to save us. And they were tripping. And they were tripping when they should have been trusting. If they would have trusted the Lord, they would have went and grabbed their cushions and went to bed too. (laughs) Hold up, we can do that right now? Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Jesus was in the back of the boat, knocked out. He was getting that good sleep. Right? Their perceived dangers were actually irrelevant. Not because the threats weren't serious, but because their Jesus was still sleeping. It's interesting to note, just in the Bible, the disciples get it wrong a lot like we do. They're not sleeping when they should be sleeping, and they're caught sleeping when they should be awake. (laughs) 
Jesus invites us into his experience. Right? They wake him up. And they had, to, they had to shake him to wake him, right? They woke him up. And he, he rises and he rebukes the wind. Verse 39. He says to the sea, peace be still. I don't know if we get to replay certain scenes when we get to glory. If we get, I don't know how that's going to work. I would, this one, I just really want to see. Uh, peace be still. And it says the wind ceased. Obeyed him. Wind stopped. Yes, Lord. And there was a great calm. What's interesting about the text is Jesus was enjoying the calm before the calm came. And he's, he, he doesn't give room for how the disciples respond. It's not categorized as something that's understandable, something we all struggle with. After he rebukes the, the wind, he rebukes them. Right? Some questions are statements, strong statements. And Jesus' questions here are very strong statements. He said to them two questions. These are two questions for you to pocket to carry with you in life. Uh, friend, if you find yourself troubled in circumstances, if you find yourself mindful of the scary situation, and you find yourself in fear and not able to enjoy the rest and peace of the Lord, these are two questions to ask yourself that Jesus asked them. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I know for me, when I am being sinfully anxious and fretting, all kinds of stuff gets disturbed, but I get sleepless. I get restless. I get short with others. I get frustrated. I start not thinking about the Lord right. My joy leaves. Peace leaves. Because all I'm concerned about is what I don't understand. And saints, I assume you know something of that. I just want you to know how Jesus categorizes that. That's just sinful unbelief. You don't got to know nothing to have peace. If you know Jesus, you got you to understand stuff. You do not have to understand. What it was is it was their control that was disguised as concern. They were out of control. So they thought they had a good reason to be concerned. But Jesus was not out of control. He's never out of control. So what the question actually showed was not so much the thoughts about the situation, but the God who was sovereign over it. Those saints, acquaint yourself with Psalm 131. It's a short psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. And it's a psalm that says, you ain't got to know. Psalm 131, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. When we say, no, nah, nah, I'm going I'm to I'm trust just once I understand. That's lifting up your heart. My heart's not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But as a, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forevermore. They was in a storm. They was going crazy. They should have seen Jesus say, let's, y'all, let's calm and quiet our souls. 
They should have been sleeping like Jesus. And I say this for two reasons. The first is what Jesus' actions teach us. Jesus was asleep on a pillow. Right? Good, good sleep. It rim cycles and everything. In the middle of a storm. Now, Jesus is God, yes? Amen? We, we believe that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. The Lord Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God, we're told, right? He is the very radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. You know what God doesn't do ever? Sleep. This is one of the things he reveals about his own character that we worship him for, right? He is the watcher of his people. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. We had a prayer meeting yesterday, and it was early, and Brother Jonathan got on the phone, and he was, he was how you doing? He said, like, I get the crusties out of my eyes. We was like, yo, God never does that. We all got crusties. You, you know what crusties in your eyes are, right? That's a creature thing. Creature crusts. Look, God, God doesn't sleep. God doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't need it. So Jesus here was sleeping as a perfect human. This was his godly humanity, completely without sin, shining forth in a complete confidence in his father's guilt. He obeys for us. And we see in his example what he invites us to. It's what it means to be united to him, that we get to partake of the same things he enjoys. And one of the things that the Bible says is connected with trust often is, 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 is rest, being able to rest. Now, you see this in Psalm 127, right? Unless the Lord builds a house, right, the laborers labor in vain. Unless he keep his, keeps watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and you go to bed late at night, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He was asleep, and they should have been asleep too. Right? Sleep is a creature thing. And as God's created children, we get to enjoy, in trusting in him, peace. We get his rest. I don't just say that we should have enjoyed that, though, based on his actions, though I do think it's a clear inference, but I also say that based on his words. Jesus did not say, I oh, know, y'all, his waves are crazy. Let me turn them down. My bad. Sometimes I leave our kids' sound machine up too loud. We got to go in the room and turn it down. Jesus was not saying that. Jesus rebukes them. Why are y'all so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The question is, what would it have looked like if they had it? So really the question when we ask, do you know how to sleep in a storm, the, the, the question that's behind that question is, do you know how to trust the Lord? Do you know how to not fear what's frightening because you trust him? 
This is something the Lord Jesus continues to ask to us all, like, why are you so afraid? It's all throughout the Bible, God's people going through situations he's called them to and in sin getting afraid when they had no reason to. Not because the situation wasn't scary, but because God, who has overcome the world, was with them. The the command to not be afraid is always connected to the presence of God with his people. How are they afraid? And Jesus is right there. We say, but Lord, look what's happening to me. And we, we, we justify our answers to that question. I can't not be afraid. Lord, look what's happening to me. Lord, I'm in trouble. Lord, I'm in danger. Lord, I'm confused. Lord, I'm surrounded. Lord, I'm unsteady. Lord, I don't want this. Or Lord, I don't like this. And before we say, but that, and that's why I'm afraid. I'm afraid because of that storm, Lord. I'm afraid because of these waves. There's water in this thing. Jesus doesn't let that happen. Jesus says, no, you're afraid because of unbelief. When I'm afraid, it's because of unbelief. Have you still no faith? Still, right? You, you can almost say, still no faith? And it's, it's interesting. They're going to have another situation on the water where we're told that they hardened their hearts. They still didn't understand about his many works. These are things for us to be on guard about, not hardening our hearts against his, his, his many wonderful works that's intended to encourage us to trust him. We have no reasons to not trust the Lord. We have no reasons to be afraid. After we considered all he's done for us, after we considered his many provisions for us, and we've considered the many dangers he's rescued us from, the many valleys he's walked us through, the many kindnesses that he's shown to each of us, the many promises he's given us in his word, how he's promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, would we still have no faith? At the end of the day, it's them not believing that he is who he said he was and that he'd do what he said he'd do. Whenever I'm being tempted with anxiety or whenever I've just fully given myself over to it, when I'm surrounded by fears, I frequent this passage a lot because it gives a very quick line to repent. when, When we're freaking out because of circumstances or God's providence in our life, the thing to do there is not soak, it's not to coddle, it's repent and believe. We go through this to take your eyes off what you're looking at and then set them on the Lord. And you ask yourself two questions and give yourself to two works. Trusting the Lord, right? Asking yourself two questions and then give yourself to two works. First question is, how is my Christ? As you're going through something that's troubling you, that's confusing you, that's bothering you, It's happening a lot because you're looking at it and you need to look past it to look at him. And ask yourself, how's my Jesus doing right now? And what you'll find, saints, is that he is doing just fine. Seated on his throne, ruling and reigning, making intercession, continuing to uphold the universe by the power of his words, continuing 
to be ready to give you grace to help in every moment of your need. He has went through the grave, but he has come out victorious. He is resurrected and ascended, seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He is doing just fine. And if he is doing fine, you can believe all his people are. Because he cares. You ask yourself, how's my Christ? And then you ask yourself, well, what did he say? What did Jesus say? Get you some scripture. He told me he'll never leave me or forsake me, so I can't be by myself. He told me that he means good for me. And that he's working all things together for my good. For all of those who are called according to his purpose, who love him. And I love him. And the reason I love him is because he has first loved me. And I know that he's loved me because he has sent his son to die on a cross for me and to be raised for me. Uh, he's told me he'll give me everything that's needed in its time. That I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious about my life, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear. Life is so much more than these. He told me to remember the birds. Remember that he feeds them. And then to look at the field and know that he clothes them. Even Solomon and all of his splendor ain't decked out like them. He tells me that he cares for me. That he already knows what I need before I ask it. And if I seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness first, he's going to give me exactly what I need. He's told me that he'll support me. He'll be my helper. I don't need to worry about money. He says, don't love money. Be content with what you have. He's promised to never leave me or forsake me. And he himself is my helper. In terms of protection, I know that the Lord will deliver me out of every trouble. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And he's already convinced me that he loves me and he's for me. For if he did not spare his own son, but he graciously gave him up and for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? What did he say? If you find a passage of scripture that says you're good to freak out now, take him at his word. But if the scripture says, do not be afraid, I'm with you, take him at his word. How's my Christ? What did he say? And then the two works to do after that is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from it. Turn from being anxious. Turn from being fretful. Turn from having sinful thoughts about the Lord as if he's unconcerned or uninvolved or as he's incapable of doing something about your situation and believe that he has you exactly where he has you because of his love. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote when he says, if there is any circumstance that would have been better for you than the one in which you are now in, divine love would have put you there. How do you know when you trust in the Lord? Right? We, we get a clear rebuke about not trusting the Lord. We don't want to do that. We don't want to freak out. We don't want to be anxious. We don't want to be fretful. We don't want to think that we're perishing what does it feel like? What does it look like to trust the Lord? How do you know when it's happening? A few things. One, you won't be afraid. Even if something that's frightening. Saint, what are you afraid of? Is there something you're afraid of? Anything you're afraid of? Why? If 
all things are under his sovereign control, if all things are being directed and guided for your benefit and your joy in the Lord Jesus and your eternal happiness in him, why could you possibly be afraid? You'll know that you trust in the Lord when you're not afraid. You also know that you'll trust the Lord when you have joy. I don't mean you're walking around smiling. I'm talking about joy in the Lord. The sole satisfaction and confidence that he loves you. When you have joy in the Lord and you can be thankful for the very thing that you were tempted to be frightful of, you trust in the Lord. A James 1 says this, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that in the testing of your faith, so you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, lacking in nothing. You count up your joy because you know this is only coming to me to help me. He's helping me. What they missed in the boat was he was helping them. He was teaching them about himself. We sang that and be still my soul. Then shall you better know his love and his heart. And when you have joy in that, I get more of him. I get to know him better. That's what life is. Eternal life is what? That we know him, the true God and the son that he sent. This is why James is counted a joy when you meet trials, because, you know, those trials come from a loving father's hand. They're overseen by a loving savior's shepherding who neither sleeps nor summers, and he's using it intentionally, personally, to forage your good. He's teaching us in trials, saints. And when you know he is, you can be thankful for it. You can have joy in it. Another way you know you're trusting in the Lord is when you have peace. When you can sleep. And the kind of peace that the Lord gives goes beyond the situations we're in. So our scripture calls it, it's a peace beyond understanding. John 14, 27, the Lord Jesus told his disciples as they were about to be without him bodily and be tempted with many things to trouble their heart, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Isaiah 26, 3 calls it the perfect peace. He will keep him in perfect peace. Those who keep his mind stayed on him because he trusts in him. Those are things we need to be looking for. The, the signs that we're not trusting the Lord is we're going to be afraid. We're going to be freaking out. We're going to be anxious. But when we are trusting the Lord, we're going to have joy. We're going to have peace. We won't be afraid. And this all kind of crescendos in the text of the fact that they just didn't know who he was. At the end of the day, the reason we freak out is we still don't know him. This is one of those things that you can say what you want to say. But what do you show? Uh, the disciples were privy to very special knowledge. We're told that Jesus taught the crowds in parables, but he taught them everything he was teaching them in private. 
They got to walk with the Lord Jesus. They got to hear the Lord Jesus teach. They get to ask Jesus questions. They got to watch him interact with many. Uh, no one had more access to the knowledge about Christ than these men. And yet even they did not know everything about Jesus. Even they had some things to learn. And what this scene showcases is they did not know who he was. Verse 40 says, after he says, why are you so afraid? Verse 41 says that they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this? What you mean, who is this? You ain't know who was in the boat with you? You didn't know that King Jesus was the one sleeping in the boat? Who you thought that was? They say, who is this? And you can almost hear uh, a sister Dottie has, she likes to say, whenever you get a new little piece of it, she says, you level up, right? The disciples leveled up here. They're like, doo -doo -doo -doo. whoa. Yo, the elements obey him. When I was growing up, uh, I had a very foul mouth. Um, yeah, did not know the Lord until later in life. And yeah, was known for all kinds of crudeness, uh, particularly in language. And me and my friends was all the same way, just being foolish and talking crazy. And we used to say things to each other that was just reckless. But it's just in our twisted minds, that's how you treat friends. You know what I'm saying? We was just, it was crazy, we, the stuff we used to say. And there's certain terms we would use for each other, which I won't repeat any of them now so as to not be distracting. One day I was talking with my father. And I wasn't in my right mind. I don't know what happened. I was talking with my dad, and he said something. And I addressed him in the same way I addressed my friends. It was one of those situations where, like, it happens, and you're like, oh, no. Uh, and I remember I said something, and I remember my dad looked at me. It got quiet. And he looked at me, Samuel L. Jackson eyes, right? Those are those, like, it, Samuel L. Jackson eyes are, that's with someone's eyes communicating, did you just lose your mind? And so my dad's looking at me, and he said, what did you just say to me? I was like, I was filled with great fear. <laughs> I remember just like freezing, because I was like, and it, it, it was clear to my dad, and it was clear to me. I forgot who I was talking to. These disciples forgot who they were walking with. They forgot who he claimed to be. They, they treated him like he was a common guy, just like one of the other teachers. They did not regard him as the Lord of all that he is. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, something for us to remember as we go through our hard situations there is nothing that Jesus does not control 
it would seem that even though there was much that had been explained to them, there was much they didn't understand. They didn't get Jesus controlled everything. They didn't get, it was his doing that they was getting rocked by them waters. Right? We, we can do this with the Lord. When we don't repent of our unbelieving thoughts and our unbelieving worry, we can start interacting with God and his providence in just very crude and inappropriate ways. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Reigns over all. Commander of the angels. Upholder of the universe. Sustainer of all peoples. The judge of the living and the dead. And if he said, I'm with you, trust me. We're supposed to know that he's with us. And trust him. In the end, the disciples coming to see who rules the winds and waves, it should have made them reinterpret everything they just had about the storm and make them reflect differently about what they just went through. He actually controls what, we, what was just happening to us. The winds and waves didn't just start obeying Jesus when he rebuked them. They was obeying Jesus when it was rocking them. And when you know he controls them, it lets you rest. Because if the winds and waves obey Jesus, and they do, the reason my boat's being rocked is because he's rocking it, and he must have a good reason for it. So I'm just going to go to sleep and trust him. He still had much to teach them, much they needed to know, and so do we. Friends, how are you going to learn to sleep through a storm if he doesn't send you through one? And what happened to Job? You remember how Job ends, right? Hardship, 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 hardship. He came to see the Lord like never before. What happened to the disciples? Waves and crashes and rebukes and then what? They came to see the Lord like never before. Guess what the purpose of trials are in your life? James says, count it a pure joy because you'll come to see the Lord like never before. I ask you again, church, do you know how to sleep in a boat through a life-threatening storm? The church says we do. We don't always do it like we should, but we do know how, and it's through trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. It's believing that if he died for you, if he was raised for you, if he intercedes for you now as he ever lives above to do, if he's going to help you in every hurdle, in every area you need help in, if he's promised by his word to bring all his children safely to glory, if he's promised that one day you'll arrive at the home that's being prepared for you, if he's promised that one day you'll look like him, just like him even, we have no reason to be afraid. He hasn't lost one yet, and you will not be the first casualty. Well, disciples came to see who he was, and this was a lesson they had to repeatedly learn. Saints, we need to understand that this is a lesson we're going to have to repeatedly learn soon. I just want to put this little pebble in your shoe as you try to walk with the Lord. When you go through trials and you're afraid, you do not have to be. Not because we have a crystal ball about the future, not because we're not going to ever experience anything that's going to hurt us, 
is because our Jesus is always with us. Our Jesus will bring us all home. And if he sent it for you, he sent it for a good reason. Our job is to trust. Oh, dear Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you. Your word tells us to not lean on our own understanding, but to in all our ways to acknowledge you. And we pray that you would help us. Help us as a church in hard seasons, in trials, in tough circumstances, in rocking boats. Help us to acknowledge you, to trust you, knowing that you, you make our path straight. We thank you for providing for us so richly in Christ. We thank you for the promise of the time to come. We thank you for your pledge to be with us, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so that we can fear no evil because you are with us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to do exactly that, to fear no evil, but trust your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name.